Thank you, everyone, for downloading this week's Weekly Curio. I am Jeff Wagg of the College of Curiosity, and my normal partner, Tom Britton, is off starting his new theater. The Whip Theater opens today, and he's unable to be with us. So I thought, well, rather than go a couple of weeks without a Weekly Curio, let's do kind of a filler episode by bringing in an interesting person to talk about interesting things. And that interesting person for today is Martin Gannon. Martin, say hello. Hello. Martin, tell me about you. Who are you? Why are you on my show? I am a bioengineering student at UIC in Chicago. That would be the University of Illinois, Chicago. Yes. And I also have a YouTube channel called Testing Turing, where I'm trying to do educational things. <laughs> yes. So, so what, what's your specialty? What are you studying specifically in school? Neuroengineering. So oh, things okay. that can hook up to your brain, so, eyes and ears. Yeah, so just, you know, real simple stuff, you know. You, you don't want to yeah. get into anything too complex. No. Ah, okay. All right, well, before we get into the wealth of content that you have suggested that we talk about, I have a very exciting piece of news. It's certainly not as exciting as the new frontier of neuroscience, but I think it's pretty cool. Uh, I, on College of Curiosity, we do a mystery object every day, and... Object 113 was this really strange thing I found at a museum. I don't know if you saw this, Martin. Did you have... Uh, it's I a, did, yeah. It was a metal thing. So I'll try to describe this. It's really much better to look at the picture. So if you go to collegeofcuriosity.com, you can see the pictures. But it's it was a spike, a metal spike with a very intricate hand-woven metal chain that led to a tube, and on the tube there were serrations. So, okay, it's a mystery object, so I clearly know the answer, right? I'm like, okay, everyone, guess what this object is. Except that I found this in a museum, and in the museum, uh, the museum was started in 1890, and this thing is that old, and the museum display just said, Sorcerer's Rattle, India, from India. And that's it. There was no more information, so... I don't feel like I can accept that as a, as a, a good. Have you ever heard of an Indian sorcerer? No, not nah, no me either. That was that was a concept I was unfamiliar with. So I actually just wrote this big long piece today about how interesting it was that this museum hadn't updated their display with more information and how the old style of museums was information wasn't important. It was all about how the object was cool in and of itself, and there would be a guide to walk you around and say, over here we have the polar bear that was shot in 1872 by explorer, you know, whatever, blah, blah, blah. I, uh, when I revealed the answer to the mystery puzzle today, I promised that I would contact the museum, which in this case is the Fairbanks Museum in St. Johnsbury, Vermont. And guess what? I'll bet you can guess. They didn't know? They wrote me back! Wow. And they did know, and their story is fascinating. It turns out that they indeed wanted to preserve the way some of the older exhibits were. So they call that their legacy collection. So it's like an internal museum within a museum? It is. It is exactly it. Um, they, so instead of, um, you know, updating their exhibits like most museums do, they left these alone so that we could experience what it would be like for someone in the Victorian era to see the museum. And they know exactly what it is, where it came from, and its whole story, but they purposely don't put it out, because that would ruin the experience. What they're counting on is people like me to write them and say, what the hell is this thing? So, uh, I will tell you what the thing is. And you can press pause here if you want to go look at the object and have a guess for yourself, but I, I'm going to tell you what the answer is. 
It is a Kokara. Kokara is spelled K-O-K-K-A-R-A. And it's a type of instrument, a musical instrument, that's more commonly known as a gyera or a gyro. You ever heard of those? No. You ever um ever been to uh in music class they had this like a piece of wood with grooves on it and you'd like rub a stick on it? Yes, yes. That's what we're talking about here. And uh it's I'll actually play a little bit of sound right now. Yeah. Yeah. So that that's a gyro. That's uh, I, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but that's made out of a a piece of wood. This is a metal version. But that you know, so okay, so it's an instrument from India, and it turns out that um Kakaro appears to be a region of India. I'm actually having trouble doing any more research than what was in their email, but I have I just got it now, so I will do more. But why did he call it a sorcerer's rattle? And who is he? Well it turns out this was brought back by the Reverend John Peter Jones, and he was a missionary. Aha. And he would travel around the world trying to convert people to Christianity. So to him, any religious figure who wasn't Christian was a sorcerer. Naturally. Naturally. And this is one of the instruments that somebody had in India. So I, I'm going to do more research into this, but I was very excited to get a quick response back from the museum. And again, I will say, if you are ever in New England, make a trip to St. Johnsbury and see the Fairbanks Museum. It is not the biggest museum you'll ever see. It does not have the most impressive exhibits. But as a museum itself, as as an as an entity, as an entirety, it is it's amazing. The, the architecture, the way the place was set up, and here's a challenge for anyone who goes there. There's a balcony that surrounds the place. As you're walking around the balcony, you'll notice that parts of the floor are made of glass. They're actually giant deck prisms, like from old ships, yet there's no way for light to go through them. See if you can figure out what those were for, and if you can't, go and ask the docent who sits right in the middle of the museum, and they'll tell you. Very cool thing. Anyway, that is my cool news for the last five minutes. Uh, what do you have for us, Martin? Um, optogenetics. Optogenetics. That sounds like it's going to involve genes and light somehow. Uh, yes. So bioengineers are able to take the genes from eyeballs that are sensitive to light, and they're able to put them into neurons deep in the brain, and then they're able to put an electrode and hook it up into the brain, and then put a fiber optic cable instead of, you know, typically you'd use um, a metal cable and send electricity, but this time they're able to just send light, and using the, the light-sensitive properties of it that it, now, that it has because of the genetics, they're able to turn on and off the neuron. And this can do a few different things. Like this article says. Well, wait, wait back up. Let's yeah. let's make sure I understand this correctly. This would be like instead of plugging your toaster into the wall with an electric cord, you would plug it in with a light cord. Um, kind of. I mean, the neuron is already able to be powered. It's just how do you turn it on or off? So it's just signal. It's not about power. Uh, yeah, signal. Yeah. And and this. So if I'm getting my terms right, there's a synapse, and that's normally bridged with electricity. But you're going to bridge it with light. It's no, it's normally bridged with uh, chemicals. The electricity goes through the neuron. What turns on and off the neuron is it could be chemicals, it could be uh, concentration gradients, or could you know with eyes it opens up in response to light though. Wow. Okay, I, I've learned something new here already. But and, and so now they can make light-sensitive neurons in the brain, which gives them a much less intrusive way of modifying things. Yes, theoretically, yeah. And you can actually control 
I think before the electrodes were only able to re record what was happening in the neuron, and this is actually able to go the opposite way. Now we're able to tell the neuron what to do. You know, explain this a little bit more to me. Is this an on-off switch, or can it be in gradations? Can you like have a rheostat and turn up the light, or how does that work? A neuron can either be on or off. Like the once it once it fires, it fires. So I'm guessing I'm not an expert at this, but. When the light comes on, it turns on. So you could like change the frequency with which you fire, but you wouldn't be able to like make it stronger, but just more frequently. So you could pulse it very quickly if you wanted yeah. to. Well, so all right. So give me an, an example of what this might be used for. So researchers were able to wipe out memories in mice. And so you might be able to use it for post-traumatic stress wow. or the NSA could wipe out, you know, people like their workers' memories. So then, all right. So something horrible happens to you. They would hook you up to an fMRI machine, have you think those horrible thoughts, see which parts of your brain lit up, and then somehow disable those parts or yeah, it's possible I mean these the more conservative uh not science fictiony example would be like to help with severe epilepsy oh, or some okay. other order oh so I think a disorder where there's actually the 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 neurons are firing erratically. Yeah, that would be like the probably the first step, and then eventually they might be able to eventually go on to post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, so they would, I guess, then they would cut the the normal pathway for the neuron to turn on. They would cut that and then replace it with theirs, almost like a pacemaker. Yeah, that'd be a good way of thinking of it. Yeah. Wow, ah, it sounds super super intricate. You can also use this to even control behavior. Uh, they do it with mice where they, they hook it up to the part of the brain that controls like running in circles and they can just turn that on and off as they wish. Once they turn the light on, the light, the mouse just runs around in circles. Wow. That's, so that's a little creepy. So uh, remember that Star Trek episode, Spock's Brain? No, I didn't see it. Oh, there's an old Star Trek episode. Uh, Martin is a little bit younger than I am, so our references may not exactly line up. But, uh, the original series of Star Trek, uh, there was an episode where Spock has his brain removed. Because it's Star Trek, he isn't dead. They just have a little remote control they hook him up to, and, and people drive him around. <laughs> mm. But it sounds like similar, this, yeah. this could be similar. It's like, okay, I'm going to make you turn right now. I'm going to make you turn left. Yes. Wow, there's going to be some sci-fi coming out of this discovery. Yeah, pretty impressive. Have you ever heard of an elephant bird? Oh, God, that rhymed. No. An elephant bird. This thing, so I was just in Bahaba, also known as Bar Harbor, Maine, and I was in this, found this great shop. It's called the Rock and Art Shop, and it's a, it's a, they have a cabinet of curiosities, a giant one, and it's for sale. Like you can buy things out of it. It, I, I was very, very excited. They're sending me a big package of stuff that I bought. I did not buy the elephant bird egg they had on display because it was valued about $12,000. And since only about a hundred of them have been found, I don't think they would sell it anyway. But, uh, okay. So you know what an ostrich looks like? Yes. All right. Imagine an ostrich, but beef it up like an ostrich on steroids. Imagine it's 10 feet tall, not just six. All right. Imagine it weighs 800 pounds. It's a big bird. It's a very big bird. And now, so you're thinking, oh, this is some ancient species from long ago. No, they've only been extinct a few hundred years. They were hunted to extinction on Madagascar, maybe by 1600 or 1700. And, and yeah, so uh, they had one of the eggs of this thing. It's pretty much the size of a basketball. Wow. 
It is just massive, and we hear all about dinosaurs, but there was some really strange stuff that lived into relatively modern times. So anyway, I got to see one. I did not buy it. I did buy, however, a flying frog. A flying frog. A flying frog. Not a toy, mind you, a dead animal known as a flying frog. So, Jeff, you say, how might a flying frog fly? And I will let you think about that. How does a, fr- a flying frog fly? Uh, jumping out of a tree and then yes. gliding down? Yes. But which body parts does it use to glide? Between its legs and its hands? Good guess. And that is how almost every single critter that flies does it. Uh, no, actually, it, it, it has incredibly long toes and fingers. Well, I guess they're all toes because oh. it's a frog. Yeah, it actually has four. It's webbed feet. Frog feet, is that right? Yeah, anyway, frog feet. Paws? Do frogs have paws? I don't know. I don't think so. But uh, they're really big, and they're like, so he's got like four little wings. And he jumps out of the tree and kind of glides on these four little wings. So that's kind of like a change in adaptation. Probably already had that for swimming and in yes. water, and then it just did it for air. Right, and it's a tree frog. And so, you know, this is a frog that would have evolved in water. You know, duh, it's a frog. Uh, but many frogs learn to get out of the water for to escape predators. This one has evolved to be in trees and yet has another adaptation and probably to avoid predation because um, I can't really see how this would help them eat. Uh, the flying snakes, which are another one, uh, sna- flying snakes fly by, we talked about this before in the Weekly Curio, but they they basically turn their bodies into frisbees. And they don't make a hoop. They they flatten their body into a shape that looks like a frisbee cut. If that makes any sense. I think I've seen some videos on that. Yeah. Yeah. And they um when they jump out of trees, they jump in order to get prey. But they don't. They're they're sneaky about it. They don't jump after the prey. They jump near the prey. Like if they see something in another tree with their infravision, they will jump to land on the branch where the tr- prey is and then sneak up on it, snake like. I can't imagine a frog doing that. No. It might also just conserve energy, too. Instead of climbing down the tree, they can just fall. That's a, that's a very good point. You know, I, I'm assuming they have to get into water fairly often. I, have to, I, I haven't received the flying frog yet, and I have to do more research on where it's from and stuff. But it's a, a very cool-looking thing. Enough about my adventures in, in Bahaba. What other interesting things do you have for us? Selling drugs online reduces violence in the illegal drug community. And it increases happiness. Well, I guess that that point is up for debate. Well, I mean, people aren't killing themselves, so that seems like it would increase happiness. People. So, so what's the basic theory here? Why is it better for me to go to drugazon.com and download and uh, order some, let's say, marijuana, or rather than go down the street and find my little guy hanging outside behind the bar? Actually, the pure, like the business to person is actually pretty less is less violent, they think, but business to business is very violent. And they find that 20% of online transactions in the drug market are business to business. Interesting. And it's actually the anonymity because you're using like Bitcoin. So no one knows who you are. So there's no way for competitors to know who you are. There's no way for the FBI or snitches to know who you are exactly. Reduces the amount of violence. So the the fear of getting caught is lower. So is it like you, you wouldn't, if you were a dealer, you wouldn't feel as much the need to defend yourself. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's not a, you know, you're not defending ter- physical territory, you're defending online territory, which is a little different. It's not. Right. It's like, I'm, yeah. I'm going to kill you, sucker, doesn't really work. 
<laughs> right. In an anonymous online forum. Although it's been tried. Yeah, the article somewhat goes into that, but I think there was like, there seemed to be six assassination attempts, but they were related to like snitches within the community that they knew already. Wow. Uh, what a, what a crazy world. What do you think about, um, you know, so marijuana is going to be legalized. Uh, it, well, it, it has been legalized in Colorado. I am assuming that that is the start of it being legalized everywhere. I could be completely wrong about that, but what will that mean for things like this? For the online community or for just general drug sales? I mean, you, you have this illegal market right now. Will it go away or will it persist to compete with the legal market? Um, I'm guessing that it will probably go away, at least for marijuana, because there's this thing called like, superior goods. So you want to buy stuff from a legal market even if it costs more because mm-hmm. it's just less hassle. Yes. I don't think that I will be buying illegal drugs anytime soon, but uh, I guess that if I decide to, I would rather promote a less violent way of doing business. So I think I would probably look online, although I wonder how the consumer would be protected they still have to mail the goods. They still have to deliver them. Apparently, they're just wrapped in like scentless things and sent to your house. And the sh- the actually the store is called Silk Road. It got shut down in October. Ah, so they, the studies are coming out, but the the entity Silk Road doesn't exist anymore. Correct. Ah, there's well, like competitors that are springing up, but eventually, I'm guessing that they're going to get caught. Well, we live in a brave, new, and interesting world. Yes. All right, so Martin, you have a puzzle for me. Why don't you lead that up here? All right, so an engineer walks into a CEO's office. The engineer says, I've got this new project. It's going to make a lot of money, but it's going to be really bad for the environment. The CEO says, I don't care if it harms the environment. I just want to make as much money as possible. Let's do the project. Jeff, do you think that the CEO intentionally harmed the environment? See, it's that word intentionally in there. Did the CEO intentionally harm the vi- environment? Was his intent to harm the environment? And I and I have to answer that no, because he's apathetic about the environment. He even says that. I just want to make as much money as possible. Which is his job. That, that's the guy's job. And uh, so I can't say that he intentionally harmed the environment. However, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not defending that attitude. So you would be in the minority. 80% of people would say he, the CEO did intentionally harm the environment, at least in some study that was done by Josh Nob. Really? That's very strange to me, because do, do people not understand the meaning of the word intentionally? <laughs> well, they actually did this. Uh, they figured out that people with uh, closer on the spectrum of having Asperger's or autism actually are less uh, likely to give people these kinds of intentions and just take them at their word. Like, he just wants to make as much money as possible. And it seems to line up with everything that the CEO's goals are. That the CEO doesn't want to go around harming people or harming the environment. It's in his statement. You know, he doesn't yeah. care. And I, I take that to mean he doesn't care either way, literally. He doesn't care. Right. Uh, but people are reading... Wow, that's very interesting. That could explain a lot of failed relationships on my part. Um, <laughs> so, so, all right. So, go to the next part. Okay. So, scenario two. An engineer walks into a CEO's office. The engineer says, I've got this new project. It's going to make a lot of money, and it's going to be really good for the environment. The CEO says, I don't care if the project helps the environment. I just want to make as much money as possible. Let's do the project. Did the CEO intentionally help the environment? And I'd again say no. To me, they're exactly the same question. Well, only 25% of the people said yes this time. So (laughs) people are more likely to agree with you this time. 
So I feel like I am not seeing something that everyone else is seeing, which isn't that uncommon. <laughs> uh, this is probably one of the biggest problems with, you know, flag pins on politicians, vests, people reading intentions when they're not really there, or they, there's a lot to pick up on, on what pe people don't just say the things that they mean. You know, there's always hidden meaning to Something. Right, and and of course, marketing would get a hold of this, and and you know, for the first one, they would be defensive and say, "Well, here, our job is to make money, and we didn't do anything illegal." Right. And like, for number two, they would say, "We care about the environment, so we are really, you know, we have this new project that saves birds and bird bees and fish or whatever." Yeah, typical. Yes, I know engineers would or economists would probably say to the first situation with hurting the environment, like if the government feels that it's a bad thing, they'll just raise the cost on polluting the environment right which and so we just outsource the morality and so the ceo doesn't have to really worry about it like that'll be included in the cost carbon credits right monetize yeah. the morality so that you can do math on it yes yeah it's like yeah, we, everything's got to be turned into math we can't actually be human here because you can't do calculus on humanity yeah well that's very interesting i would not have predicted that people would have agreed to the did the ceo intentionally harm the environment i mean i the only thing I can think is that they don't understand what the word intentionally means. But it sounds like what well, from what you're saying is that they're actually reading into it that only someone who wanted to hurt, harm the environment would make a decision like that. Well, they'd be like to be so blasé to say, "I don't care if the environment if the project harms the environment." Maybe if they even said something like, "It's unfortunate that the, it harms the environment, but it does make the, it does make more money, and that's my goal." Like even that might get you to like sixty percent saying. Interesting. So it's it's really about it's about the wording. It's about the words more than about the meaning behind the words. Uh, yeah. In fact, if you left that part out, uh, so it says here, I don't care if the project harms the environment. I just want to make as much money as possible. Leave out, I don't care if the project harms the environment. Leaving, I just want to make as much money as possible. I wonder what the results from that would be. I'm sure he went into it somewhere in a study. Yeah. But. So so tell me more. Who who did this study? Uh, Joshua Nob. And where can people read more about it? Nob effect is what it's called, but it's not really. Oh, he got a name. He has a name for it. Yeah, but it doesn't have a Wikipedia entry though. Oh well, if it doesn't have a Wikipedia entry, it can't be real. It's not really an effect then. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's at Wait. Scientopia.org. So I yeah will, okay, look there. Yeah, I will uh, I will put links in the show notes from Scientopia.org. But again, if it's not in Wikipedia, it doesn't exist. I mean, that's it's my... like a subsection under his Wikipedia page. Ah. Thank you for making me feel like a space alien once again. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> you presented me with a thought experiment. What if everything cost zero dollars? What would people do? So is this like, you're talking about like the Star Trek universe here? Uh, like, you know, we can just replicate whatever we want? I'm not sure how it would be accomplished. Maybe 3D printing or something like that. Sharing information online with uh, healthcare and having computers just do your healthcare for you. Having food produced in some sort of way passively with uh, uh -huh. solar energy. So we would like Maslow's hierarchy of needs here. We're all yeah. full. Everything you've got, everything you need. Housing, energy, healthcare, food, transportation. How all would you spend your time? Well, I I know how I would spend my time. I hope, and that would be creating things, creating art in any various forms. Uh, there's only two kinds of creation as I see it. Creation to, to fulfill your hierarchy of needs. You know, to give yourself housing, energy, health, food, 
or money that can be used for those things. But if they're all fulfilled, the only other reason to create something is for art. And if you're not creating anything, well, I don't know. I mean, that's for me. I have to be creating something. I couldn't just sit around. But that's me. What was your answer? I think, yeah, I mean, think some people would be interested in like curiosity and art science. And I think also status seeking and mm. also not, but not just status seeking, but keeping track of other people's status. So like, who's the best artist and who's the best scientist? Status seeking. Interesting. Well, I'm guessing that in this world, we would still have gossip magazines. It's exactly what I was thinking of, like People Magazine. You'd still care about the celebrities that got married and pay attention to who's who's on the magazine. Who's? Oh, and I guess you'd still have sports, right? I mean, I'm not a big sports, sports fan. Yeah. But... Physical competition, exercise. Wow, you just made me think of something. Is there a contrast between sports and art? Are the people who are interested in creating something different from the people who are interested in sports? Oh, I think so. I'm, I mean, you know, in your general everyday thing, you've got the artsy type and the sporty type, and we stereotype those as separate groups. I mean, even in the, the, the movie The Breakfast Club, they were represented by different people. I mean, there's a difference between, like, physical pushing back and forth and reaching towards arbitrary goals to, like, get higher status, and then the other one is, like, making a better song. You know, a song that's better than other people, but it's also kind of unique to you. There's no, there's less rules. So, but, but, but it would be pure. It wouldn't be about... Like, all right, so YouTube is something we talk about a lot, you know, how to, getting more YouTube hits. You wouldn't be doing that so you'd get better advertising rates and more money. You'd be doing that to have a bigger subscription number, and that right. would be like your score. And then you're actually, in a way, turning your art into a sport. Yeah, I guess. I mean, that kind of already happens, I guess, really. It does as far as status is concerned. I mean, you know. Who's the biggest star? Well, how do you define biggest? Is the most popular, the one who makes the most money, the one who's... It, it, it's very rarely the one who makes the most art. You know, who, who's the biggest rock artist? Is it the band that's produced the most albums? Mm, certainly not. Definitely not. Yeah. So, it is a... It is a it's not... Well, I was going to say it's not a quant quantity thing. It's a quality thing, but I don't really associate popularity with quality. It would be interesting to see if they, uh, they it split off into people that made things and people that just consumed things. But the consumers would need to compete somehow, even if it was by proxy. I mean, that, that's, that's, that's my sense of it. Well, hey, you know, let's try it. It's a new reality show. We get 20 people and give them everything they could ever want and see what happens. I think they've tried that formula for the last <laughs> 15 years. <laughs> and what did we see happen? <laughs> Horrible things yeah. that are edited to look even worse. Make drama. Dun, dun, dun. So-and-so doesn't like so-and-so. And tonight, they confront. Rawr! Yeah. Um, I, I think you're probably right. So so what you're basically saying is that if every, everyone gets everything they need, it's just going to be as depressing as it is now. Probably. I mean, maybe people actually enjoy working and actually struggling a little bit. It takes away from the opportunity to feel... But, but Sad about your status. why are we struggling? Why are we trying to meet these needs if it's not going to change anything? Uh, we're getting into some pretty <laughs> deep stuff here. Plus curious, yes. The answer is 42. It's a good enough answer for anyone. Clearly. <laughs> <laughs> so, Martin, if you've been listening to Weekly Curio, and I know you have, you know that the last part of every show 
is stuff we were wrong about. Yes. What were you wrong about? Put you on the spot. This is this is Martin on the spot. Sharks actually can suffer from cancer. Lies! Lies! Sharks don't have cancer. There was even a book published about it. About them sharks. having yeah, about them not having cancer. <laughs> because if they can't get cancer, of course, then it means that their powers can be shifted towards us. That's right. It's like, you know, if you want thicker skin, eat a tree because they've got bark. Yeah. Uh yeah, no, it, it's sadly true that that the whole thing with selling shark cartilage because it would help you not get cancer. Uh another in a long list of scams. But did you actually think it was true? I thought the cancer I didn't think that the you could avoid cancer. I just thought that you that I just thought that sharks didn't get cancer. Ah, okay. So you you weren't going to go out and buy the stuff, but you thought the the basic idea that sharks didn't get cancer was true. The initial premise, yeah. Yeah. Well, I I think uh I think, you know, it's not an unreasonable thing. They're very different animals. But in fact, we just how the hell would we know? <laughs> we don't we don't live with sharks, so it's a little it's a little tricky to say never with them. And all right. For me, I grew up watching Superman cartoons, and if Superman ever needed a diamond, why, he just grabbed a piece of coal and made one by crushing it together. And that isn't actually how diamonds are made. Um, it is true that you can make a diamond by compressing coal with a lot of heat and pressure, but it's a rare, rare thing. 99% of diamonds are way, way deeper in the earth than coal has ever been. And, and, and we know this is true because they found diamonds on other planets and they have never found coal on other planets. And if they do find coal on another planet, somebody's winning a Nobel Prize because coal only comes from living things. That would be a great discovery. Yeah. Do you know what I did? I did, you know what I did like two weeks ago? I was in a coal mine. Okay. Under the ocean. Wow. I was in Sydney on Cape Breton Island where they have a mine that you can tour. And I've toured coal mines before. But this one is right on the edge of the ocean. And you go in the mine, and you walk down. And the mine, all the mines in that area, or many of them, are actually under the ocean. So when you're in the mine, not only do you have all that stuff above you, you know, the rock and stuff, you've also got the ocean. And because of that, they're very careful about, they make the the pillars are, are done in a very specific way. But how tall do you think the ceiling is in a coal mine? Depends on what part of the coal mine you're in. Very I'd imagine true. it could be anywhere from like 5 feet to 40 feet. That sounds good to me. I mean, that's what I would have guessed. And indeed, in this coal mine, while we were walking around, the ceiling went between 4 feet and 7 feet. Okay. But we were walking around in there, and it was 4 feet. And then the guy told us that that was only for the tourists. In an actual mine, the ceilings were as low as 18 inches, Ooh. and people were working in there. You would have to crawl between the layers to get the coal out. We had people leave our tour because they were so uncomfortable <laughs> because of the four feet. Uh, it's just hard to believe. We get to the bottom of the mine, and what do you think was there? You should probably say coal or tools or rocks. No, it was a garden. They had a garden planted in the mine, and it wasn't like to produce oxygen or anything, which was probably a thing. It was, uh, they just wanted to have some fruits and vegetables down there. It was just a, a little area that was cut out. They took all the coal out, and then they, uh, they had a raised garden bed. And when we were there, there wasn't anything growing in it because, um, 
it was after the winter and the mine had actually frozen, which doesn't normally happen. Never happens in a working mine. But uh, yeah, they'd grow all kinds of things like tomatoes and peppers and radishes and stuff. Where's the light source? They had uh, fluorescent lights hanging overhead, which are, is enough. Fluorescent light spectrum, even though it's not the complete spectrum, it is enough to grow plants. I know this because I've done it. What did they fertilize the soil with? Purified coal ah! dirt? No, good answer. I mean, actually, that's an interesting point because uh, burnt coal ash was used as a... They could use that as a fertilizer because it had chemicals in it. But, no, there were actually a lot of horses down there. They they had these d- horses called pit ponies that lived under the mine, in the mine, that would haul things around. And they, of course, made a lot of manure. And what are you going to do with the manure? So they, they, they composted the manure and used that to fertilize the garden. They really figured out the system. They really- oh, yeah. Was, <laughs> you know... It's kind of fascinating. It's you need horses to move things around, and you got the, the waste product from the horses, and you make food with that. Right. Humans are pretty creative when you come right down to it. But uh, unfortunately for the miners, or fortunately, depending on, on how you feel about coal mining, uh, it became more expensive for them to mine coal than it was for them to buy coal. So they could, yeah, they could go under there and make 68 cents a ton for coal, but they could actually get it for 50 cents a ton. So, uh, you know, the mine's closed. But anyway, it was a, it was a fascinating thing, and I really don't think I'll ever be doing it again because it was quite uncomfortable. And we have gone way off topic, but that's what we do here. So, that is it for this week's Weekly Curio. Martin, thank you very much for being on our show. Thank you for having me. You are welcome. And for everyone else, we will be doing another one of these kind of substitute ones next week. And then hopefully, Tom will be back the following week. So, thank you all very much. Thank you. Oh, and uh, I'm Jeff Wagg from the College of Curiosity, and you are... Martin Gannon from Testing Turing. Excellent. Excellent.